Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me is a man that wants to take a minute to apologize to absolutely no one, the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. The double champ does whatever he wants. The double champ wants an ice-cold beer. This week we are drinking... Two cans by Zaftig Brewing Company in Columbus, Ohio. Garage grade, how about four out of five bottle caps? That's two cans by Zaftig Brewing Company. T-O-O cans. So who is this beer brought to us by? This Russian Imperial Stout is brought to us by some of our very good friends. First up, we have Brenda Sue in Highland, California. Next, we have Allison in Bay City, Michigan. We also have Keith in Queen Creek, Arizona. Madison in Kirkland, Washington. Kaylin, she recommends that we try some beers from Ranger Creek Brewing in her hometown of San Antonio, Texas. And last but not least, we have Christy, who is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And she says that the Yuppers, Yopers, love True Crime Garage and they love beer. So that must be her referring to the Upper Peninsula people of the wonderful state of Michigan. We want to thank all of you for buying us around for this week. And if you want to buy us some beer for next week's show, get in the garage by going to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And it means a lot to us. So thanks for doing it. We like your gym. For everything True Crime Garage, go to truecrimegarage.com. And you can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat. (laughs) I get some weird Snapchats normally on the weekends, like Saturday night. (laughs) <laughs> it's a bunch of drunk Snapchats. Anyways, follow us on all social media at True Crime Garage. And if you enjoy the show, make sure you tell a friend. Hey, hey, you should listen to True Crime Garage. Subscribe.
Yeah, and after you get done telling a friend, go and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Helps out the show big yeah, time. Sm- speaking of Snap- Snapchat, Uh-oh. Uh, we had a listener that was, uh, they videotaped somebody subscribing. She forced the guy at the bar next to her to subscribe to her show. So how ma- I wonder how many people at bars go, hey, give me your phone. Let me subscribe to the show for you. You know what? I think you're setting yourself up for some strange and weird Snapchats come this Saturday. I think you just you just set yourself up, my friend. I won't check them till Sunday. All right, boys and girls, that's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. That's enough of the business. And let's talk some true crime. Two weeks ago, Captain, was it two weeks already? Yes. Yeah, it was two weeks ago. We did our Halloween show, and we got to talk about our favorite uh, true crime documentaries. There's so many good ones out there. Yeah, if you haven't checked that out, go listen to that episode. And also, let us know what your favorite documentaries are. Yeah, and one of the perks of doing these shows and hosting these shows is that I got the opportunity a couple weeks ago to speak with Joshua Zeman. He is the creator and one of the hosts of the new docu-series that's coming out, well, has just come out, called The Killing Season, which is on A&E. Uh, highly recommend checking that out. I watched the first two episodes over the last weekend, and those are available on A&E's website. Uh, but we also spoke to him a little bit about uh, some of the documentaries that were on our top 10 list. Uh, he did a documentary called Cropsy mm-hmm. uh, a while back, and he also did the uh, Killer Legends documentary. So we wanted to take this time to talk about the upcoming show ourselves, but also give uh, you an opportunity to listen in on Joshua and I's conversation. Yeah. And I checked out the first two parts, the first two part of the eight series, the killing season. You got to check that out. It's very interesting. He does a really good job of making you uh, new little tidbits. And then all, and then by the end of the episode, you're like, Oh God, what happens next? You know, and it was, also interesting to see the people that we talked about when we covered the Long Island Sierra Killer case. So um, check out this conversation between Nick and Joshua Zeman. I think you'll enjoy it. We will most certainly get into the killing season and the Long Island serial killer case. But before we do so, I wanted to talk to you about your documentary called Cropsy. What was your inspiration and how did this come about? Yeah, you know, growing up in Staten Island, we had always heard about um, this guy, Cropsy, who was uh, theoretically an escaped mental patient who lived in the tunnels or the basements of the old Willowbrook Mental Institution, which was this kind of abandoned, somewhat abandoned mental institution in the center of Staten Island, like in the woods. And we all knew it was pretty infamous because, uh, uh, well, especially when you're a kid, all abandoned mental institutions are infamous. Um, but, you know, from the Geraldo footage and, you know, we didn't really think anything of it. I mean, we knew it was a little bit creepy and I think, it was used to um, keep kids away from, you know, 
having keg parties in the woods. Uh, and plus the buildings were kind of decrepit, you know, like you can walk up stairs that went nowhere and out into the, you know, into like some, some stairs that had fallen away. But then, um, a little girl with Down syndrome named Jennifer Schweiger disappeared from our neighborhood and they found her body buried on the grounds of that mental institution. So suddenly, um, that urban legend became real. Uh, the police um, actually went in and released to the public that they had... Well, I should say that the man accused of taking her wasn't an escaped mental patient, as the urban legend said. But, in fact, he was a former worker who had been living on a campsite on the grounds. And the police revealed to the public that this guy had been suspected of taking five other kids throughout 30 years, but they could never convict them of the crime because they could never find the body, which in police parlance is called corpus delecti, no body, no crime. So, yeah, I mean, for the kids living in Staten Island, this was an urban legend come true. However, and what the film tries to do is to ask the question, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it, you know... As we know, there are always urban legends about mental institutions. That's been happening for years. Um, mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter where you are, you're going to have an urban legend about mental institutions. I mean, you see them in those tropes play out in Hollywood movies all the time. You know, um, you know, Halloween, Jason, you know, um, Mike Myers comes from a mental institution, that whole thing. Um, but, you know, or was this a case of the police and concerned parents knowing that a pedophile was out there and they couldn't tell their kids, Hey, don't go in the woods of pedophiles in there. It just, you know, that's just not a compelling narrative for a kid. Uh, but if you add an escape mental patient with an ax and use that as your warning, that works. So, you know, of this urban legend and as you get older, I mean, it turns out that this is a real life person, that, that there is a real life monster behind this legend. Now, did you know about Andre Rand before uh, you started the documentary or when you were a child? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, I I would like to say that the biggest criticism and, you know, with some of the, I guess more of the horror guys, we're very upset that that we we didn't spend more time talking about the urban legend. So whenever Mm -hmm. I do interviews and stuff, I have to, like, talk a little bit more about the urban legend. Now, the Cropsey urban legend actually comes uh, from sleepaway camps in upstate New York in the 1950s, Jewish sleepaway camps. But it's a little older than that. Um, Cropsey is a kind of American revolutionary around that time. It, it, it's, a, it's a common name. Uh, and the urban legend always starts out with a judge or a doctor, somebody of like some high intelligence, high power. And he is... I think typically he's like vacationing or he's having his honeymoon with his beautiful young wife and some kids, Boy Scouts, what have you, are playing with matches and they burn down his cabin. The wife, sometimes as a child, he, they die. Uh, this Judge Gropsy or Dr. Gropsy is always like horribly disfigured and he grabs an axe and he's maddened with revenge and he goes after... The count, uh, he goes after the, the campers, you know, and, and so mm-hmm. it, it was used in upstate New York, you know, it, it, that's where it came from, from upstate New York, and there's a couple, like, Cropsey is a, a, a 
fairly well used name in in uh, New York. You see Cropsey Avenue, and somehow that urban legend kind of traveled down to New York City, and it got mixed with the escape mental patient urban legend, and then it was applied to Andre Rand. Now, we, you know, it's a good question whether or not I, we knew Andre Rand. Mm-hmm. Some of the older kids did. You know, he was, you know, you're the local Boo Radley. He was, you know, the kind of guy who lived in the woods who would, um, you would see around, but he, you know, who, who had like place in wood, but he wasn't really homeless. I mean, he was homeless, but like, he wasn't, you know, an alcoholic. He wasn't like kind of your, you know, your, your mentally ill homeless. Um, so was homelessness an option? Was this a choice for him? It was a choice. Yeah. It was a choice. Yeah. I mean, this was a guy who felt like an outcast. This mm-hmm. was a guy who, who went to live in the woods. Um, he was a sign painter before that. Um, you know, people have asked me, is he crazy? Yes. He's definitely crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, you know, in, I think he's schizophrenia. Uh, but I don't think he's like the crazy like you might think. And so they knew Staten. They knew Andre Rand. You know, he was the guy who, you know, they saw in Mike Shoplift sometimes. Or, or he was the guy. Like, there's all these stories people tell, like, he would come into the diner and order a tea and a bagel. You know, that's not something that really, like, you know, kind of, like, crazy homeless people do, you know? Right. So, you know, it was a weird persona. You know, I think he was more scary than he was anything, you know, because he was peculiar, you know? And so then it plays into that whole Boo Radley thing, you know? But the pedophile portion of his crimes, is that because of his mental illness, or is that just some kind of proclivity that he has? I think it's a proclivity that he has, um, because I... Yeah, I think it's a proclivity that he has. I think the question is, how does that manifest itself? And so here's what we know about Andre Rand, right? His mother was in a mental institution, and his father died early. His mother was in a mental institution called Pilgrim State, which is in Long Island. It's one of the largest mental institutions at the time in all of the world. It has, like, its own train station. He went to go visit his mother at an early age when she was in the mental institution, and he worked at Willowbrook he was returning to something that he knew. I think he felt bad for these people. I mean, imagine going in in the 1950s to visit your mother in a mental institution every weekend. What would that do to you? You know what I'm saying? It's like the start of well, a horror film. It is the film. start of a horror film. The, the state and the conditions of those mental institutions in the 1950s, I mean, one could only imagine. Horrible, horrible. You, you, you can only imagine. So, so I think he, you know, it, it, that was like maybe a way for him to stay in touch. Um, so he, you know, decides to get a job in a mental institution. And by the way, the design of the mental institution is called a Kirby design. Uh, and so he's, he's not only in, you know, a mental institution, but one that looks very similar. Mm-hmm. And I think for someone who's an outcast, working in a mental institution makes you feel normal or good. Or superior. I'm not quite sure. Right. Um, but on the proclivity side, I think it was also a place where he could freely molest and it wouldn't be a problem. You know, it wouldn't raise any 
red flag. Exactly, because if one of the patients or one of the children there complain about what he's doing to them, I mean, is anybody even going to believe them? Yeah, and, and trust me, in the 1970s and 80s, you had one attendant for 35 to 40 individuals, which mm-hmm. today we, it, it is unheard of. So, and I think there's a lot of a lot of sexual activity, you know, going on in those mental institutions with people, you know, people who just didn't even understand what, you know, that is per se, but had feelings. So, you know, it's really hard to say. But there's a couple more interesting things on top of it. Um, Okay. He had a girlfriend, and people have since contacted me on Facebook after the documentary. You know, Andre Rand was sent to a mental for uh, evaluation um, after he had his um, his breakdowns. And a lot of people in Staten Island at the time were like, oh, these these breakdowns are bullshit. It's not real. <clears throat> he's he's using it to uh, get out of the crime. I, I don't mm-hmm. think so. <clears throat> Especially if you, you see that, you know, very um, iconic photo of him drooling on the perp walk. You know, it's... Yeah. Uh, I... I, 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 I I, you know, I don't buy the people who are that good of an actor or that, even that smart. Um, and so I was always trying to like, really understand what was going on. And finally, somebody emailed me and they gave this whole description and which basically the end of the description was, this is the type of schizophrenia that you actually see on TV, the kind of full mental breakdown schizophrenia where... Hmm where pressures, societal pressures or like daily pressures become so much that somebody basically has to act out. And when and and typically that's an act of control. So let's say societal pressures are your your you know, your stressors, right? You use mm-hmm. the term in serial killer stuff, stressors happen. Stressors happen for a lot of people. They don't just happen for serial killers, they happen for pedophiles too. So your girlfriend breaks up with you, you you know whatever whatever and you know, you know it it's about power, mm-hmm. I think, and an opportunity. And so I think, you know, when these stressors would happen on his life, he he would go out and molest somebody. And then I think it was so debilitating for him that he ended up abducting and killing the child. And mm-hmm. r- rather than just, like, kind of letting it go. And then, you know, because when he was faced with the crimes that he did, he went into this catatonic state. He had... He'd done it a couple different times. So I really believe that 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 is what's going on. Because, you know, as you see in the film, we have many conversations with him, you know. And the conversations, like, he's a smart guy. But you can also tell, like, there's some stuff going on as well, you know. Hmm. Now, was he convicted of her death as well? Kidnapping. Oh, Kidnapping oh, in the first degree. However, which carries the same sentence. Was he still working at the mental hospital when he abducted this girl? Well, so he had been doing this for a number of years. And in the backstory of our film, in 1987, he had no longer been working at Willowbrook, yet he was still living on the grounds in a campsite. He was walking home to his campsite, and he he found this mentally disabled girl who lived in our neighborhood and struck up a conversation with her, and I think that that's both a crime of opportunity and, and you know, a familiar crime to him and, and also, again, somebody who he connects with. And so he had not been working in the mental institution at that time. However, the trial that you see in the case is for a girl who had been taken six years previous. Her name's Holly Hughes. 
And at the time, he was working in a mental institution, but Holly Hughes, I think, was another crime of opportunity. Or it's like opportunity plus. Mm -hmm. Holly was outside at 9 o'clock at night. Um, Her mother uh, had some dependency issues, and so I think there was some problems there. And, you know, he always, Underground always called himself like a soldier for Christ in -hmm. some of his letters. And I believe he thought he was doing God's work. I believe he felt like the atrocities that he witnessed at Willowbrook basically kind of gave him this view of life that he he had to save these children. Maybe from all the horrors that he witnessed working in Willowbrook, maybe what happened to his mother. And so <clears throat> it was better off to kind of like kill them versus letting them be unwanted children. That was his right. point. Of, of course, where the pedophilia comes in to that narrative, I'm not quite sure. You spent about 10 years working on Cropsey, and then afterwards, you're going to take a little bit of downtime before you start your new documentary. How long does Josh need until, until he starts the new one? Good question. You know, um, one thing that really interested me because I was a kid growing up and had heard the urban legend of Cropsey. Uh, and after that was, and I think this was new for a lot of people, just the idea of urban legends and looking at them from a true crime standpoint and looking at them from how they evolve, you know? And so people were like, oh, you should make another serial killer movie. And the last thing I wanted to do was to make another serial killer movie. I, I thought that people didn't really understand The the realities, I mean, I just spent four years, if not more, talking to parents whose children have disappeared and never been found. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I even had, like, family members call me up and say, like, I'll let you do something on my child, but promise me you will never make a serial killer movie. Because in, in our culture, we celebrate that rather than understand the true life reality of that. And... I was like, and, and so that really affected me. And so after that, I, I was, I found myself focusing more on the urban legends because of the power of urban legends. And so, uh, we did, uh, killer legends as a, uh, kind of, um, a pilot for a, a channel, uh, where we took, we looked at these like urban legends and we looked at, you know, these true crimes that may have started these urban legends. And that's what's so kind of cool about urban legends is that they, and you know, and this is all kind of new territory. Like, people hadn't really been talking about urban legends like that. You know, they knew what urban legends were, but they really weren't looking at them from, like, a folklorist and a sociology standpoint. So I found that really interesting. And that's what's cool about urban legends. They need some sort of truth to breed from. They need some sort of truth to become sticky and to really, like, get into your consciousness. And, you know, they need some kind of true crime that's typically, like, unsolved so that there's some air of mystery about it. And then they can add on top of that whatever cautionary tale they want to. And that's the nucleus of all these uh, killer legends or urban legends. It's always a, a warning or a cautionary tale. Do everything that you're supposed to do or bad things will happen to you. You you do something that's wrong and it might circle back around to you. It, it, and it's really interesting because urban legends in that warning is typically a much more complicated 
coded message about social anxiety. Um, and I had no idea, to be honest. Like, looking at it, I'm like, wow, these urban legend stories are really complex, and they're pretty mischievous. And they're pretty, like, subjugating. Like, for example, we looked at um, the Hook urban legend, right? One of the oldest, most famous urban legends, which is don't make out in your car or, you know, a guy with a hook is going to come get you. And, of course, you know, there's a lot of other kind of interesting little things built in there. Uh, usually the, you know, like the couple's getting hot and heavy in the car. Uh, the girl... Um, you know, just as they're about to have sex, this thing comes over the radio that there's an escaped mental patient, of course, uh, with a hook for a hand, and uh, and, and he's going to come get you. And the, the woman is really upset, and she's scared, and she wants to go home. The guy, of course, just wants to continue having sex. She says mm-hmm. no. He gets pissed, jam- and it's like kind of important. He jams on the gas in reverse, and they pull out of the, the lookout, and they get back home, and she opens up the door, and, and he goes out to open up her door. And on her door is the hook that's been pulled out of the arm. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So it's, it, it's more than just, like, she doesn't want to have sex. Like, the guy doesn't get it, and then he, like, gets pissed, you know? And so yeah. in, this, in this whole thing is it's all about, you know, teaching kids teaching kids, scaring kids into not having premarital sex or else mm-hmm. you're going to get penetrated by a hook. You know, and I'm yeah. like, oh, man. <laughs> I was like, that's horrible. <laughs> and, and look, there's even another one, right? The other one about um, uh, the babysitter, you know, and which is mm-hmm. very famous, right? Call comes from inside the house it's about babysitters, babysitting for the first time, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's a guy upstairs calls her, did you check the children, did you check the children? Now, yeah. wh- why is this urban legend? Because it's an urban legend. It's a cautionary tale against women, again, uh, becoming too successful in the um, business world. You know, like, you're not supposed to be babysitting. You're not supposed to be out. You need to be... And, and because in a lot of these times the, the girl is, like, talking to her boyfriend on the phone and the, and the guy clicks through, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be talking to your boyfriend. You should be minding the children. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, damn, there's all these like really not just like there's really these horrible coded messages about subjugating women in these urban legends. It's crazy. Yeah. We'll get right back to their conversation right after this quick. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. 
So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. 
I have a problem and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Beer break. All right, back from that beer break. Thanks to our sponsors. And let's get back to the conversation between Nick and uh, Josh. I'm not on the phone call, um, you know, because I wasn't invited. That's very nice of both of them. But let's kick back, crack open another cold one, and listen to these guys yap about some true crime. Josh, we've been seeing in the news all these scary clown incidences where you have you have people at the park or you know clowns in the woods that are terrifying little kids, and this is everyday news. But this relates very much to your documentary. What really got me into it was again this, these ideas of storytelling, right? And so basically, what we found out was in the 1980s there was these phantom clown scares that happened all over the United States and internationally. Um, kids were seeing uh, clowns in white vans roaming their neighborhoods and playgrounds. Now, white vans should tell you already that it, it, it's based upon pedophile fears at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this was a way for kids to kind of like talk about their pedophile fears. Now, it, it happened in, and we go to Boston where, uh, sorry, we go to Chicago, like inner city Chicago where it happened. And, um, it was amazing. These kids would talk about how it like, this was before Stephen King's it before and before poltergeist and pre internet. So what you would have, what you had was you had black kids in hardcore urban areas talking about these clown scares. You had Hasidic kids (laughs) in the same, you know, city doing the same thing. And then it would jump. It would go to like Pittsburgh. It would go to, uh, Pittsburgh's, Boston, San Diego, Scotland, and and again, this all happened pre-internet. So this was a hysteria, and I was just interested in the idea uh, of clowns becoming creepy. Like, when did that happen, you know? And I was also interested in the idea of storytelling pre-internet, urban legends pre-internet versus post. And we end the segment, you know, with this whole thing about clowns and chaos, and that clowns had finally reached this pinnacle of evil. And that was, cre- there's this term that urban legend folklorists have called ascension. That's when you make something real by enacting on it. And that's mm-hmm. what uh, that guy James Holmes did when he dressed up like, you know, with the orange hair, like the Joker and killed all those people in Aurora, Colorado. He was mm-hmm. basically taking the urban legend and enacting on it, making it real by creating chaos, you know. And and this the idea of the clown being the agent of chaos, the idea of the clown being the other, or the idea of the clown being the other half of us, the one that we keep, that we don't like to talk about, the one that we don't show the world unless we're, re- we're wearing a mask. 
and then we can engage in all the sexual and violent behavior we want to. Um, and right after we did that, also, also all these people were like, by the way, I don't understand the clown thing. Makes no sense. <laughs> and right after we did that, some filmmakers in Staten Island, um, people thought we did it for a viral campaign. We didn't. Uh, people, there was some filmmakers in Staten Island had done it, and then it popped over to like a couple of other places in England, and then it died down. Now, it happened again this year. But this yeah. year, it went viral quickly. People, in, it was happening everywhere. And, and it's not done yet, of course, obviously. And then it jumped, and this is important in understanding what the, what the truth is, it jumped to England pretty quickly. And then most recently, it jumped to Germany. And I just did an interview, uh, HuffPost Germany, where literally I'm sitting there talking to this guy about, about the clown scares. And suddenly he gets a, an email saying that some clown had some real clown, like they firebomb like nine cars and stab somebody. And so it, the violence has happened. Yeah, we're already seeing violence with these incidences, but never before. And I can't figure out why that is different. I don't have an answer for that. Why is this different now? So I don't quite know either, although I have an idea. My idea, so one thing that has to happen first and this is kind of what we hit two years ago, was that clowns had to become the ultimate evil character. And they have. You know, there's no denying that clowns uh, are the ultimate evil character that, you know, and, and that culminated with the Joker. Once that became entrenched in our collective consciousness, something else happened. And, and basically, you know, I, I don't... Politics, whatever. But when you have fear. So urban legends are um, mirrors of our current social anxiety, uh, society's anxiety. It's always about what's happening right then and there. And so I think that this is about politics. I think this is about an election that people are saying is one of the worst they've ever seen. I think this is about a lot of fear of the other, um, whether that's, you know, Mexica Mexicans, uh, whether that's uh, people from all over, uh, Fear of like thugs, fear of like war, fear of drugs, fear of guns, you know, that whole nine yards. And then we're also seeing a lot of kind of taking down of American institutions, you know, whether it's taxes or whether it's Russians or all these things. So, so I think it's about this fear of the other. And that is also why, um, it had jumped to England so quickly because they're having the same thing with their Brexit issues. Um, mm -hmm. So that is one of the things that we're seeing uh, a lot of right now. Um, and then uh, the other part, there's another part of it. So before, I can tell you that I don't really think anybody was dressing up like clowns. In 1985, nobody was really dressing up as clowns. But now people are actually dressing up as clowns and doing it. You know what I'm saying? So there really right. are people standing on the corner. And that's the difference, too. So that, so why are people kind of like doing it? And I think, you know, right now there are also a lot of people who want to kind of act out, uh, and, and they don't have an, an outlet for that. Like, basically, to some people, this is the equivalent of pulling the fire alarm at school. The, the problem with pulling the fire alarm is that nobody knows it was you. 
you know, like you want to take credit for it. And so when you could go dress up as a clown and do it, you you get a little bit more recognition. You get there's a picture of you, and then you really get to see like the school administration and and what's even better, the police freak out. I mean, it, it's like yeah. The Simpsons, you know. You know, when, when I, and I can't help but laugh either, you know, when you go and you see a police officer standing at the podium saying, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we do not believe that there are any clowns here in town. You know, like, you can't <laughs> help but snicker that these guys really had to go out there and, you know, look at this. And so I think we're also having a very big conversation in our culture right now about the, about community policing and law enforcement, you know. And so... Like I said, it's it's like pulling a fire alarm for the police. You know, what better, slightly harmless thing you can do? Are we to the point now where if you're wearing a clown outfit and you're in a park that you can get ticketed? Or if the captain goes out and stands on a corner and he's dressed as a clown that he's going to be handcuffed and thrown in the back of a police car? You know, clowns have become, you know, they're such a polarizing figure. So... We, in Killer Legends, right, you see, like, this clown dressed up, right? And he drives around a white van. I mean, we were just having fun back then. But it was really interesting because we went to this um, urban neighborhood. And these full-on gangbangers, when they saw this guy dressed up as a clown, they suddenly were like, yo, man, that's not funny. Oh, (laughs) they got weird. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like... (laughs) Like, these gangbangers suddenly, like, dropped all pretense and were like, yo, that's not cool, that's not funny, yo, yo, yo. And so it's very, it's, you know, it's very interesting how, you know, what that does to people. Why is yeah. that? Why why seeing a clown suddenly freaks you out? It's because of the stories that they grew up hearing. And it, it's, nobody's eyes ever look right with that makeup. It The, the haunting face and the eyes just always look evil when you pair it with that mask or the makeup. So the cool thing is, you know, well, I mean, those exaggerated faces were done on purpose back in the days of the circus because they needed to be exaggerated because you sat like 200 feet away. You mm-hmm. know, so you, you needed to see them big. But then we took clowns out of the big top and we brought them into our homes through TV, through trials, birthday parties. But they never changed the makeup. You right. know? And, and so suddenly it was like, whoa, you know, but then the other questions started to pop up. And this is when, you know, like I said, back in the 1980s, it was about pedof- the fear was pedophiles. Now the fear is the other or the fear is the breakdown and chaos that is that is slowly gripping us, you know, mm-hmm. um, through 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 our political situation. But back then it was pedophiles. So, you know, it was all about like. Who's the guy, who's the sweaty guy behind the makeup playing mm-hmm. with the children, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now it's not sweaty guy, it's not the sweaty guy anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's it's the guy, it's the kid with sharp fangs who's, you know, doing whatever. And I always thought that this stuff was happening because, or started because of movies like Stephen King's It or Poltergeist, that, that we developed this clown fear from from movies and scary stories uh, you know that's like that's called it's cultural zeitgeist you know all that stuff was hitting at the same time mm-hmm. uh, and, and what we talked what we talked about is it was the fact that it was gacy you know it's not just gacy but gacy in in the you know gacy and the clown outfit really freaked a lot of people out you know people started making those connections you know and that's when you started to see gacy's paintings and all that other stuff and it could be i mean i really love to know from stephen king um you know, 
where he got the idea from Pennywise from. Yeah, and I love Stephen King and absolutely horrified and terrified by Pennywise the Clown. I would love to figure out how he came up with that idea. Um, let's talk about your new docu-series, The Killing Season, which is on A&E. I know it's about the Long Island serial killer, or maybe it starts off that way, but what what is this case about, and, and what is the docu-series about? What do the listeners need to know going into this adventure? Right, so basically it's an eight-episode uh, eight docu-series um, that looks at the uh that looks at the unsolved <clears throat> uh, that looks at the unsolved uh, murder of ten sex workers in Long Island, New York. Um, so basically, after Cropsey, everybody wanted me to do a serial killer story. I didn't want to. Uh, I did Killer Legends, and then this case popped up. And you know, I remember it, it, first it was four sex workers that they found in 2010. Um, and then a couple months later, they found the remains of six more sex workers along the same abandoned highway. Um, I, you know, we very much live in a CSI law and order world where we think that this thing is going to get solved very quickly. There's got to be some physical evidence that's going to solve this case. Mm-hmm. And then year one, no arrests. And then year two, no arrests. And then I started to hear uh stories about uh, political backstabbing and fumbling of the case and, um, you know, arguments about whether it was one serial killer or two. And one of the reasons I made Cropsy was, you know, I wanted, there was a lot of fiction, found fiction movies coming out at the time, and I wanted to make a movie that showed people that sometimes horror is quite real. And if you want to see something really scary, let me show you this footage from an old mental institution because that's right. really scary. And when this story came up, it was a way for me to do that again. It was a way for me to show the world, like, look, there's all these TV shows about serial murder. Hannibal, The Fall, The Following, you know, and, and I like them just as much as anybody else. But sometimes they were missing the point about how truly horrifying these cases can be. And I went in and started looking at this case, um, not to really to solve it. Sure, I would love to solve it. Who wouldn't want to solve it? But it was really more about how serial cases, serial murder cases really play out. And it was really more about the horror of what was going on. However, when I started to do a lot of digging into the case and started you know, to talk to some of the sex workers, I realized that there was a lot more to this case. And originally it was going to be another feature, like Cropsey. Mm-hmm. And then we realized there was so much there. We started hearing whisperings of other cases that had been unsolved, also involving sex workers that people thought were connected in Atlantic City, in Daytona. And then, you know, we could step out and look at this horrific tragedy, this American nightmare that's happening all over the country. And the police are powerless to stop it. Like, you would not believe what goes on. So this is very much like Cropsey, an active investigation, very creepy. Um, a lot of the same feel but as Cropsey, but on a much bigger scope. Now, I'm a true crime dork. I watch everything I can possibly find, and I read everything I can get my hands on. And if I had to, Josh, if I had to bet the farm on it, you know, this is something I've been telling people for years, that if – in every major city in the United States, 
there is a serial killer that's out there and it's because they have access to sex workers. And if you have a large enough city with enough people in it, there's a guy there that's killing people. And whether they are known to the police at the time of the investigation, a lot of times that's not the case. Most of the time they end up finding out afterwards that there is a serial killer on the loose. They, they catch a guy and realize that he has killed three or four people. I didn't know that. I had no idea. Like, I, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't know why. And, I, and it should have been fairly obvious, right, because of, because of Jack the Ripper. Like, you know, like, but for some reason, I guess we hear about all these other cases and, I, you know, I don't know. But so that's exactly what we found. But it's kind of even weirder because, like, since the 1970s, since our lives have become more and more trackable, since we don't have hitchhikers, uh, you know, or stranded motorists as, as much in all those cases, in an effort not to get caught, serial murders are going after sex, work, sex workers in record numbers. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is that also sex work has changed. It's now a lot of, now all the, everything's taking place over the internet. It's no more guys walking the street. You know, it's no more like girls walking the streets and guys pulling up in the car. These arrangements, these dates are happening over the internet. You would think that would make it safer. But in actuality, it makes it that much more anonymous. Nobody's tracking IP addresses or any of that crazy stuff you see on TV. In fact, you watch TV, you have this idea that Police are putting all this information in the supercomputers 24-7. Right. That is not happening. That right. is not happening at all. In fact, there are 17 to 20,000 different law enforcement agencies, and none of them are mandated by law to share their murder data with the, with the FBI's VICAP system. So it's not even like, well, you know, the, you know, it's not even like saying, like, cops don't care. They can't even track it. Right. They have no idea what's going on. And that's just not, that's not just for murder. Missing persons, there's two different databases. They don't talk to each other. But, so in Canada, you have this VICAP system, the same system that was set up by the FBI, but all their murders are required to be sent in to one centralized database. And as a result, they're able to make those connections a lot better than we are. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is frightening. I, 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 again, I thought we were so much better than this. I thought we would put in a name and a face and, you know, something would pop up. But I can't believe it's not federally mandated. I cannot, with the amount of stuff that we have on TV from, from everything, from, you know, all these different shows. And the fact that it is not at all like that is, was just the most shocking thing to me. Well, and the other part of it is the public perception. I believe that we, have been led to believe that if there is a serial killer on the loose, that we would be aware of it because the newspapers and the and the TV would come out and tell us, hey, there's these crimes going on and the police have connected them. They've linked them together. So be on the lookout because there's a really bad guy on the loose. But in all actuality, what we find out is that 50%, maybe more than 50% of the time, we're finding out that there was a serial killer on the loose after the fact, once he's caught. And we, we don't know what's going on until he's apprehended. And we're led to believe this because we think that serial crime is such a unique crime that, you know, there's going to be books about it. And we're going to see this guy's face on TV, but that's just not the case. 
We're just not aware that this type of thing is happening all the time and in most of our cities. Here's the other thing I didn't know. Uh, police aren't required to tell you that there's a serial killer. So we have a guy. So remember, I was just telling you about, about that database. Well, there mm-hmm. is an, an individual, a citizen, who has basically put together the most comprehensive database of murder in the United States. A citizen, better than the FBI, the NSA, and everybody. Now, this guy, his name is Tom Hargrove. He's created what's called the Murder Accountability Project. And and the reason that they don't do this is because they don't want you to know the fact that solve rates of murders have gone down 30% in the past couple decades. You know, We want to believe that the police are doing a great job. And this isn't necessarily their fault. Uh, but regardless, uh, murder rates have gone down. So, you know, for a place like Detroit, which was never really good at solving murders in the first place, now they're down to like 30% solve rate. So mm-hmm. if you want to murder somebody, do it in Detroit or yeah. Baltimore or Chicago. Um, but so the point that this citizen has compiled this, this um, database, and from this database, he's created an algorithm, and he types in, you know, strangled women in, you know, for, you know, in a certain, like, range, in a certain time period, and this guy comes up with all these, like, cases of all these clusters of murdered women that look suspiciously similar. And, you know, and then he's, what he's got to do is he's got to take that data and kind of go through and, like, and, like, then pull up the names and look at them and, like, really see if they're connected. But he's found certain cases where he's, where like he's called up some police departments and he's like, I think you have a serial murderer on their hands, on your hands. And they're like, no, we don't. And then it's revealed that they then subsequently, like a few weeks later, reveal to the public that they have a serial murderer, but not before mm-hmm. somebody called them out on it. And now he's featured on your show, but you also worked with the author Robert Kolker as well, right? Now, Kolker's book, Lost Girls, is to me one of the best true crime books in the past 10 years. Yeah, we recommended Lost Girls on our show. And one thing that was truly great about it, you know, Robert Kolker, he was an author. Well, he worked for magazines before, and he wrote a lot of articles on the Long Island serial killer case. And I read all of them, so I wasn't really that excited to read his book. However, I did so, and I found it was the exact opposite, you know, that he there was so much more in the book. Now, one thing that I've always wanted to know, because Lost Girls, he doesn't present his own theory on who the killer is or how this all went down. I would love to ask him what his personal theory is. He only he only suggests, you know, stories from the neighborhood or from what people in the neighborhood would tell you. What was Robert Kolker's theory? Well, listen, you know, just backing up just a tad. If it wasn't for Bob Coker, I wouldn't have done the documentary okay. because Bob Coker showed us, first of all, he did a wonderful job of humanizing these women, which I think was the best part of it. My only criticism of Bob Coker's book is that it's too short. <laughs> and yeah. so I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to create a series that could literally pick up where Bob's book left off. And because, like, I wanted to know more. And so, literally, that's what I tried to do. I said to myself, this is for all the people who loved Lost Girls as much as I did. Now let's go even further. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that had to do with, with the suspects, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, I, you know, it's hard for me. I think 
what Bob and I share is the fact that when the police stopped speaking to the public, as they did in this case, and you have an active serial killer who's murdering people on a place like Long Island, people are going to speculate. And that is just what happened here. You had an explosion of speculation that I had not seen since the Jonas Benet Ramsey case. And that's because the police are not providing updates. Mm-hmm. But in the Internet age, you, can't, you just can't not do that. You can't allow people to speculate. This is not people sitting down at the coffee shop or the diner saying, well, you know, I, I, felt, I felt like this and this. This is people online trolling, saying things that they would never say in, pro, in, in public you know, face-to-face, because that's what the Internet allows us to do, calling each other the killer the whole nine yards. And so a lot of what I think we try to do is to go in and kind of eliminate the speculation, take out all that trolling, and, and, and help people to concentrate on the real issues at hand. And one of the real issues at hand is the fact there are five individuals who have yet to be identified. So people are like, can this case be solved? Of course this case can be solved. You've got five people out there who are missing and unidentified, over 50% of the victims. To not know who those people are. I mean, we should be doing everything we can to be finding out who those victims are, and that's why we started working with the Web Series community, because the police seem to be at a standstill, but I know that there's a ton of great people on Web Series who love to match unidentified faces to people. Now, my uh, the book also looked a lot at Shannon Gilbert. Shannon Gilbert is extremely interesting. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. However... However, and, and, and it's also created one of the, most, the craziest conundrums in all of true crime. How can Shannon Gilbert not be connected? And you know what? I believe she's not. I believe that it is one of the craziest cases of coincidence I've ever seen. But I don't think it's connected. I do think it's connected in the fact that we're talking about violence against sex workers. But I don't believe it's connected in that, that list. Where the same guy killed her and, and, and all those Whole nine yards. But the problem is, is that without releasing the 911 tape, the police create additional speculation on Shannon Gilbert, unfortunately, taking away the focus from the 10 other victims who are lying there along Ocean Parkway, five of whom are unidentified. So if the amount of time and effort went into, you know, of, of figuring out what happened to Shannon versus figuring out who these five identified missing victims are, we may be able to solve this case, and that's my problem. There's so much speculation on Shannon. Bob did not really give me um, who he felt it was. But I think he, at least at the time, felt Shannon, somebody was chasing Shannon, felt she was in some kind of trouble. I don't know if he still believes that. Um, remember, and I don't know if you know this, but Mary Gilbert's, Mary Gilbert's Shannon's mom? Yeah. Tragically, she was killed by her other I, daughter earlier yeah. this year. Um, and Mary Gilbert's all over our series. Um, we talked to the daughter, and, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know if this is fair or not to say, but it does show that there's some history of mental illness in the family. And when you then go back and look at Shannon to decide whether she had a freakout or not, that adds a little bit more credence. And that's that. the hardest part about this case. You know, when somebody asks you, who do you think is the Long Island serial killer? Well, then you have to throw a question back at them. And that question is, well, do you mean who do I think did this if Shannon Gilbert is part of the crime, if she's connected? Or who do you think 
Who do I think did this if she's not connected to these other murders? And what I find time and time again is that so many people can't get over that first question. Was Shannon connected or not? And that that stops them from looking at any of the other facts in this case. They, that's a huge speed bump in this case. Now, one thing when we covered this case so many, well, quite some time ago, uh, one thing that our listeners wanted to know was why can't the police just trace IP addresses? And because these girls are using the Internet for sex work, why can't they just use the computers and, and, and email addresses and IP addresses to figure out where these girls are going or where their last appointment was? Everybody believes that somehow these women, these women are soliciting online. Uh-huh. I suggest your readers to go on Backpage and Craigslist and see how these women solicit. They type in telephone numbers. And by the way, you can't even put in like number, numeral numbers. You have to put uh-huh. like spell out eight, five, four, you know what I'm saying? Girls, they don't want to uh-huh. get caught by law enforcement. That is the only record. And these women put up these ads 10, 20, 30 times a day, like advertising. So the John looks at the woman. He then calls her. Probably if he's a killer, he's using a burner cell phone. And chances are she's using a burner cell phone. They then make an arrangement to meet. Of course, serial killer is not going to be stupid enough to ask the woman to meet him at his home in case mm-hmm. she's her boyfriend is somewhere or a driver. It's going to be at a hotel or something like that. And that's like one of the problems that I was saying before. It used to be in the olden, in the olden days. It used to be before that you a, a woman, uh, a sex worker, could always have that kind of like a, a couple seconds to make that split second decision about whether she was going to get in the car with a guy. Usually a lot of that decision was based upon personal hygiene. What did the guy look like? Is he like, you know, you know maybe he has a, a baby seat in the back of the car. Perfect. You know, that's the things that they want to see. Clean cut, clean car, baby seat in the back, guy wearing an expensive coat, a briefcase, a nice car. You know what I'm saying? That says that this guy's mm-hmm. going to be okay. And But when you make that deal over the phone, there is none, there's not that moment for you to say, hmm. So, because what happens is they then go to the hotel room where they're supposed to meet. The girl knocks on the door. The door opens and she steps through the threshold. The deal is done. It's very hard to turn back and to step back out of the room when the door's closed and you're, you know, they're then looking at each other kind of face to face. So that's the problem. So, you know, usually it's probably a car date. It's probably meeting her in a parking lot somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. and they get in a car date and then he, you know, blitz, blitz, blitz attacks her. But there's no IP address. There's nobody, you know, there's nobody like, you know, emailing back. Sounds great, you know. Meet me at yeah. my house, you know. It's not happening, you know. The Internet gives people the idea that it is safer, and we've only learned that is, in fact, added just another level of anonymity that we never even realized. And you spent a lot of time on this case, right? Four years. I mean, look what's happened. Did the police chief, had the police chief been arrested when you guys looked at the case? The current police chief? Uh, uh, no. We, when we covered it, we talked more about Dormer, who had, uh, he had retired. So Dormer retired, right? And, of course, that was about politics. And then they brought in an interim police chief, and then the DA basically kind of this commissioner versus chief, right? Uh, they brought in a different police commissioner, and then the case was handled by a chief, Chief Burke, 
who was put in by the DA. Uh, basically, while we were out filming, Burke gets arrested for um, basically beating up a prisoner who had stolen, beating up a guy who had stolen a duffel bag out of his car. Inside the duffel bag was porn, so apparently some kind of very nasty porn. And he's arrested for beating up this guy, uh, and suddenly it comes out that this guy's not just beating up guys because they're, you know, kind of revealing his porn to the world. He has been uh, politic. He's been surveilling people. He's putting wiretaps on his own detectives who are working with the feds. He's been surveilling political opponents. And then it's revealed through a memo that the police detectives in the Gilgo Beach case had asked the police chief and DA to please bring in the FBI additionally because they needed more help. And that request was squashed. And the reason it was squashed was because the police chief and the DA, or at least the police chief, didn't want the FBI snooping around his system because he was doing all this illegal activity and he was worried they might find out. So basically they were deliberately dragging their heels in this Gilgo Beach investigation. And on top of it, it had been common, common knowledge uh, that this police chief had been investigated by internal affairs twice for having relations with a pro- with a sex worker, which really in my mind isn't that much of a problem. But she was a convicted sex worker who had a crack addiction and he kept leaving his gun at her house. To me, that's a conflict of interest. <laughs> By the way, yeah. and so all this stuff comes out, and at some point you have literally the day that we were trying to lock picture on the last episode, somebody calls me and goes, "You've got to turn on the TV." I turn on the TV, and there is Steve Ballone, who is the highest ranking official in Long Island, holding up a piece of paper demanding the resignation of the district attorney, in part for dragging his heels in the Gilgo Beach investigation. Now, some people may say that that's a politically motivated stunt, but it doesn't matter where that's politically motivated. You have this guy demanding the resignation of the DA or else he's going to call in the governor's office. This is crazy stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So now, interestingly enough, November 2nd, this, uh, this, police, this police chief is going to be sentenced and now everybody's wondering whether or not the district attorney is going to be uh, indicted by L- Loretta Lynch as well. That's fascinating to know that there's still so much going on with this case. Now, your show, The Killing Season, is on A&E, not to be confused with the Discovery ID channel, correct? So, so here's another issue, right? There's two shows. So Discovery ID, of course, wanting to um, be Discovery ID, uh, decided to, when they heard we were making our show, <clears throat> decided to preempt it and, and ended up doing a real hatchet job uh, rehashing the same old, same old stories. Um, and, and they did like a one-hour or two-hour thing. Um, that starts tomorrow, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not sure when that, right. when that premieres. The 7th. Our show premieres on the 12th. Um, okay. And our show is a very serious um, deep dive into these cases. Your show, The Killing Season, starts November 12th, and it's on A&E. Right now, they're going to show episodes. Yeah, it's an eight-part series, but they're showing the first two episodes back-to-back, and then the next week, the second two episodes, and then the third week, the next two episodes. So it's only over over the course of four weeks. Um, oh, and, and then every Wednesday, we're going to be um, 
appearing on websleuths.com. Well, I'm really excited to check it out. And I'm hoping that this brings up some new leads and some new information. And if so, we might be diving back into the Gilgo case here in the garage. Yeah, I mean, if you guys want to relook at it, feel free to do so. And then we can definitely do an interview with Rach and I and myself. We have no problems. We'd love to do it. The more people that know about this case, the more chances of it, it getting solved. It, it, it can be solved by someone in the general public. That's the whole thing that makes it so exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time here tonight, Josh, and we look forward to recommending the killing season to our listeners. So we've had a chance to watch the first two episodes, and I thought they were good because here's what I'm looking for. Well, first of all, a big thank you to talking with Josh, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, But then... But also, we didn't have his partner in crime. Rachel Mills. Rachel Mills on the show, which she does a great job in all the documentaries as well. And we look forward, hopefully we get to talk to them again later on in the season. Maybe Well, when I'm only going to do so if the show is awesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, so, but the show so far is amazing, really. It, they started. It started off really good. The first two episodes were great. And mm-hmm. the thing that I'm looking for here is... You know, when we, this has been such an interesting case, and this is one that we've followed and obviously covered before. You can go find it on iTunes. Um, but when you're looking at these cases, these unsolved cases, mm-hmm. what you want, you know, these famous cases, a new documentary or a new show will come out every few years. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's not really telling us anything new. I've only watched the first two episodes and I'm already seeing new information. Yeah, normally when something new comes out, you would expect there to be new leads or new information. And like you said, most of the time, not the case. It was interesting to watch um, this uh, series so far because we did, we've done three episodes on this, which would be the most that we've done on a case other than OJ. Again, like uh, I think the update show is free on the website, so you can go to truecrimegarage.com and get that for free. Um, the other part one and part two are on iTunes, the iTunes store, but it was interesting to see the people that we actually talked about. I mean, some of them, when you're diving into this case and doing the research, you actually don't see, I mean, you'll see the the pictures of the victims and stuff, but when you see, when you talk about mothers and fathers and things like that, they're normally no pictures of those. So it was, it was fascinating to see the people that we we talked about for for so many hours in the garage. Well, just in the first two episodes alone, we see them interview people that they've not interviewed on other shows before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting in itself. And there's also being new theories presented in this case. Um, some that uh, might be old theories, but they're actually diving into these theories with a with a lot more. Um, they're very substantial, Mm -hmm. you know, the way they present these theories where before when you would see shows talk about the possibility of two killers or was Shannon involved, you know, these different things, uh, the possibility of two killers, they go deep into that theory. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was truly fascinating. Yeah. I I definitely recommend for everybody to check it out. The other thing that I think, well, first of all, I mean, Josh should be calling me to do his music composition. Good music. Overall, but I mean, come on, just call the guys in the garage to do the music. But uh, I thought uh, one of the best things about it was how human it it makes it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're seeing they're not just talking about you know the the victim; they're talking about 
the other victims. You know, there is somebody that lost their life, but there's all these other people involved in her life um, that lost the person as well. And to me, that showed how real this is. Um, and, and it's not just entertainment. And like Josh says, this is something that we should get behind um, because maybe somebody watching could uh, help solve this case. And the other thing, though, too, is with so many of these shows, these typically these magazine shows that have covered the case, a lot of times it's just a it's just a face behind a desk that's answering some questions or, or telling you what's going on mm-hmm. with, with this show. They're actually out on the streets. They are, they're driving around, um, a girl who's a, who's a sex worker in the area. They're getting to know the people of the streets and the people involved in these neighborhoods. Uh, and that really, like you said, it, it really brings the story to life and it brings, it makes every one of them human for us and, yeah. and able to identify with each of these different uh, people that are involved, even if it's just to the point where they live in the area. But uh, that that was fascinating that it's not just a, a face behind a desk. This is two people actually out on the streets doing the work and figuring out what's going on. And the list case is so fascinating to, I think, both of us. So we'll probably be, as the season goes on, I'm sure that will bring up talk, talking points. And it's a case that we'll have to talk about again on the show. So I uh, uh, hope you guys enjoyed the interview. And this week's recommended reading is... Well, before we get to that, do you mind mm-hmm. if I... Just to be real clear for everybody, you know, uh, the, the first two episodes, we've seen them. They were already on this last weekend. So if you want to see the first two episodes of The Killing Season, you go to AETV.com and check out those episodes there. That way you can get caught up and you can start watching every Saturday and follow yeah, along. Yeah, well, and a lot of people have this stuff on demand. You know, I'm sure A&E On Demand has the episodes there as well. So this week's recommended reading is Living with the Devil, a family search for the truth in the face of deception, infidelity, and murder. And this one is, this one's weird. This is a very interesting story because this is written by the stepdaughters of, of the, the psychopath that they were living with, uh, that someone that is suspected of murder. So this is a memoir by Lori and Cindy Hart. Again, that's Living with the Devil, a family search for the truth in the face of deception, infidelity, and murder. And you can pick that up by going to truecrimegarage.com. Click on the recommended page, and you will see all of our recommended books there. Just click on the Amazon banner and shop away, friends. It's the it's the buying season, right? Yeah, it's uh, the Christmas coming. And uh, I didn't buy anything this week on Amazon, so I don't have any suggestions. But next week, I'll, I'll buy something. I'll let you know what I got. Fantastic. Uh, like always, anything, if you want to sign up on the mailing list, go to truecrimegarage.com. Uh, we appreciate all the support. We couldn't do it without you guys. And we'll see you again next week right here back in the garage. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't let it. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs. 
containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.